0: Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams, and our weekly newsletter with money-off books and museum visits as well, plus early access to all live show tickets. That's Patreon.com/slash We Have Ways.
1: Acton, Acton, and welcome to We Have Ways of Making You Talk with me, James Holland. Now, a few weeks ago. Al and I spoke at the National Army Museum about his new book, Command. We decided, as a bit of a Christmas treat, to share it with you all. Hope you enjoy it. Well, good evening, one and Sorry, all. I'm just sorting um, out which leg to cross. Sorry, Chip. is that better? Well, Sorry. last time we did this, I was in that seat. Yeah, I know. So it's I know. completely thrown it me. It feels completely
0: so we like Anton Deck the wrong way round. And we've taken off our Monty sweaters. Yeah, we have. We've both <laughs> We realise
1: we've become twins. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Anyway. Um, anyway, yeah,
1: we're here to talk about this fabulous book, Command. And we've talked a lot, haven't we, Al, about the fact that it was all inevitable, really. Strategic earthquakes aside, you know, Fall of France and, and, and Pearl Harbor. apart from that, it was all basically preordained. We're, we're, we're tapping into Philip's pace and O'Brien. We, kind of, we believe all his, his numbers and figures and all the rest yeah. of it. Yeah.
0: but there's a but there has to to be a but there has to be a but there has to be a but because there's people involved yeah um and uh because you know Stalin, Stalin in in november of 1941 says this is a war of engines the person that could the side that could produce the most engines will win um and He's saying that when the you know the enemy are at the gates, and he's saying that, which I think is which is very interesting. And, and and in a way, this is a this is a this is a Marxist argument: is that is that the economics will dictate the outcome. But there's got to be got to be got to be people in it. And and the economics are extraordinary. You know, the the, Ameri- the British and Americans produce ten times as many trucks as the Germans possibly can. Yep. Um, British air- aircraft manufacturing outstrips German aircraft manufacturing, regardless. And then Ameri- when the American Factories kick in; it's quadruply so, quadruply so, and all that. But is this, you've still there's still got to be someone flying the aeroplane. Yep, you've, it's the business of persuading people to risk their own lives to take other people's lives, which is at the which is the the ghost in this machine. And I think that that's that's why I, you know. Obviously Phillips is right, but there's there's well,
1: it's got th- th- to be more th- th- there's, a, than there's that. a contemporary analogy here which which is that until Ben Stokes took over the England cricket team, they were s h1t <laughs> uh, and now they 're winning everything, uh, and that 's got to be largely down to his leadership hasn 't it so, he, so <laughs> that proves the point I think I' don't think you can apply that to all walks okay well, uh, should we go to the pub then um, <laughs> the, 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 well yeah i mean the, the, the... but it's true isn't it i mean because, because how, you, how you lead i mean you, you you, you, one knows that there's, there's certain divisions, for example, that, are, that just are terrible. They're not very yeah. good. Uh, was it the 90th, a US 90th inf- Infantry Division, I think, c- came to Normandy, was rubbish, sacked one commander, yeah. then sacked another one. Yeah. And then three months
0: later, they finally got the right, the right guy in
1: charge and they became really, really good.
0: Yeah, yeah. And also the Americans at that point have only, re- re- only really been in the war. Um, on minutes. land for, for, for two years maximum, five minutes. Yeah, I mean, five it, minutes. It, it, uh, and certainly not in that. Yeah, of course. Of course, they start late, Jim. Yes, we can. We're in the, we're in the British National Army Museum. We can, <laughs> we, can, we can. We can wade deep in that particular dirty water. But the, uh, but, but the, but the, the thing is, is there has to, you know, that the people have to be, because because this isn't, you know, um, uh, uh, there's a podcast not distant from ours. That I think your brother's involved with, and they, they they talk about you know you win a World Cup if you're from a stable, rich com- country, right? But 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 you've still got to have the players, and you've still got to do you've, they've still got to be well, and they've got to deliver on the day, exactly. And I think I think the, you know the the the, the, the premise with the the thing with the Second World War is that if it is it may well be a war of. St- stuff of hardware but the people of the software yeah. and so how you run the software how you make the software run is 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 critical to the outcome because after all there are other wars where you know like the vietnam war where the, the americans have the material preponderance and they don't win
1: um well and also look, look at russia for example i mean you know from the infographics in the times i was reading yeah. on the 20th of february it looked like it was a slam dunk for them yeah but you know numbers aren't everything clearly yeah yeah so when did you start thinking about this then what, what, what made you... Where did the seed come from? What was that, that little... Well,
0: I mean, just, just because this has always been the... Essentially, I remember I read Richard Overy's Why the Allies Won in the mid-90s. Yeah. And that is, that's the core of his argument, is that the Germans, you know, when he looks at weapons technology, for instance, is that the Germans start try to develop the weapons of the 50s and defea- are defeated by the Americans who use the weapons of the 30s, perfected. That, the, 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 you know, German technological development is a red herring. Although, actually, you know... The Allies build the atom bomb, so let, you, I think you can't you can't get too beguiled by the Wunderwaffen in themselves, mm. um, and, and, and so it always stuck around with me as a sticky thing. And one of the one of the you know one of the things we, we first talked about when we did the podcast is in his book when he talks about the minute of Madagascar, where yes. the, the French the French general in Madagascar surrenders one minute past after midnight, so his men will get campaign pensions. And he's able to use that as a bargaining point with the with the free French in order to in order to do well for his men and show his many cares. And it's it, and so so for all of this argument about sort of cogs of war, right in the middle of it, there's a bloke doing something clever and interesting that that, that matters to his men. And so 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 even in that sort of mechanical argument, because I feel I feel it is a kind of mechanical argument, you've got to have that there are people there are people who pop up and go, oh, hang on, hold on. What about me? And that's why in the book, I think we, we you know, there has been a... So that idea had been fermenting, and then largely from talking about the subject, talking about this on the podcast a lot. And this isn't in reaction to Phillips. It's just this... It's just, it's just that there's a little bit more to it. There's got to there's be. more and, to and, it and, than, and very than being mu- counting. And, and it's very much, in recent years, reading Jonathan Fennell's stuff about morale, mm. which I think his, his, his work... Um, and his investigation into morale reports, and he's looking at that, and he's and he's processing it, and you know the graphs and charts where, he, where where sickness as a measure of an army's morale, you know, people turning up sick as a measure of how an army's doing is very interesting. You know, when 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 Eighth Army's morale is rock bottom in the desert, loads of people are calling in sick,
1: well, as as they are in what was the Eastern Army becomes the Fourteenth Army. Yeah, exactly. What, you know, what one one battlefield casualty to nine hundred ninety nine. Yeah. Getting malaria and
0: yeah. dengue fever. Exactly, exactly. But so, so, and his work, sort of, the, the, you know, there's, there's the, again, he he's talking about the phantom. He's talking about the thi- the thing within the me- the mechanics of an army. W- w- what's going on? What's what's happening? And I, and I, I, and in the book, I, I felt it had to be, it had to be armies. I feel like I feel like uh, uh, that's the you know that's the Allies' problem. More than anything else, yeah, and and is the most related. Yeah, not,
1: the, the navy they're sort of on top of, really, aren't they?
0: Yeah, and, and, and with aircraft, it does become more a question of the, the quantity is a is a big is a big a bigger element than than being an infantryman. In a foxhole. Well, quantity
1: and quality of instruments and all yeah. the rest of it. Yeah, and,
0: yeah. And yeah. Th- th- those direct industrial products. But if you're, if you're two infantrymen in a foxhole, you've got to know why you're there and what you're doing and what you're fighting for and what the point is. Or you might call in sick. And, and I think we've, 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 we've done a good... you know, the historiography has done a good job of saying, well, he looks like he was a bit of an arsehole and look at the terrible mistake he made and that yeah. idea of judging people on their worst... Yeah, yeah, commanders yeah, yeah, yeah. on their yeah, yeah. worst day rather than on the sort of overall uh, competence and direction and and direction of travel. And, of course, the Second World War, the Allied side, the story is of complete disaster, calamity, cock-up, on the ground, and then suddenly this this sort of a uh, 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 renaissance that, yeah. that happens, and a, and a grasping of the, of the nettle of what the actual problems are, and t- the turning around of morale, which I think is, which I think is amazing. When you consider Dunkirk to D-Day, if we're going to do our th- triple D's, triple D's, Dunkirk to, Dunk D-Day, to D-Day, Dunkirk D-Day, for, for an institution to go from the disaster of Dunkirk. To pulling off a thing like D-Day in literally four years, in literally, well, in three and a half, really, because you've, you've got they're to already it, good before that. We've well, got to have it planned six months in advance. Yeah. To to be able to do that, you know, you, you imagine a, a modern institution finding the the well, manage, managerial skill to do that, and depth of depth of talent, and depth of purpose, and singularity of aim, and all that. Imagine that happening now. I mean, I. I can't. I posted a letter three weeks ago. So no, it still hasn't arrived. <laughs> you, you, you,
1: you, I know. I got a train up today. Late, delayed. Well, exactly. So and I know. I know. And, and, and
0: uh, obviously, you can't. You can't colour your view of, of the past with your view of the present, or try not to. But I think that's really amazing. That's that. That, that speaks of an incredible, and, and particularly in, in, you know, the Americans are going from a standing start. Really, the British, the and the, and the Americans do suffer defeat in the Philippines. But for, in Europe, they're on a standing start. The British go from complete calamity. I mean, I think I think the disaster of the battle of the fall of France still needs to be really that that chicken needs to be properly plucked, and sort of hasn't quite yet uh, because because Dunkirk kind of uh, gets gets everyone off the hook, and uh, uh, you know how badly everyone does in general is fascinating, and and yet. There are enough people who, with experience of what happens in France in 1940, who then emerge as the talent that's going to pull the army out of its mess, which I think is amazing. The, the, all the people. later heroes—they're all—they're yeah. all, yeah.
1: You know, Alex Monty. Alex's
0: last man off. Monty, yeah, Monty. You know, does really well. Brooke does very well. And, and Adam comes back and does is absolutely brilliant
1: on, on the admin.
0: Yeah. And so you so you you see the the talent coming through, and it may be it may be that it's the, you know, the the until things go absolutely wrong, you don't know who you're. Good people are um, might, might be the sort of um, pressure of the situation, but that 's what I wanted to write about because 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 after all because it's really interesting well,
1: it's really, really interesting <laughs> because and fundamentally we're still you know the, the, our, I think our fascination in the second world war d- derives from the immense human drama of it yeah, yeah. And, and that's about decision making isn't it, and about what you would do if you were in that situation, but it's also you know, you know the, the, I just can never get over the kind of gargantuan responsibility on the shoulders of these commanders. Yeah. Whether you be your, uh, whether you be Peter White or whether you be, or whether you be Monty or Patton or yeah. whatever, um, you know, a huge amount is is resting on your shoulders. Yeah. And your decisions are the difference between young men living and dying. Yeah. And and, and civilians living and
0: dying. Mm. You and know, it's 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 enormous. And yeah. And I'm someone who's fundamentally idle, and doesn't like paperwork. So that the idea of the and the responsibility, the idea, of the response, the stuff going over a general's desk, the decisions that a commander has to make on a day-to-day basis, the stuff they've got to be across and on top of, and obviously they have staff doing it for them, but they still need, they still need to have all their well, you're absolutely spinning. right.
1: I mean, if you if you ever, you know, if one ever looks at, say, let's say, for example, the papers of of, of Eisenhower, the amount of stuff that he has to read, absorb, respond to. Okay, he's got yeah. people typing up the letters, but he's still got to. It's his words. Yeah. He's got to do that. And he's got to be thinking, as a Supreme Allied Commander, about what's going on on the ground in, let's say, for argument's sake, Sicily. Yeah. But also, what's going on with shipping? What's going on with, with the replacement troops that are coming from Washington? What's going on with training? What's yep. going on with in London? Well, what you the, know, he's got
0: to be all over the well, whole lot. It's, the, it's just extraordinary. Yeah, and what the casual t- Casualty estimates in yep. the Pacific are which might impinge on his ability yep. to prosecute the All campaign that. in
1: Europe. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and he's got to understand air power, naval power. He's got to, yeah. you know, he's got to be on top of the whole shebang. But how you structure it, I think, is really interesting because you've got these different. you your, your foc- each chapter focuses on a different character, but at a different stage in the war. Yeah, well, because because and, a, and an unusual bit of well,
0: their t- life. That's what they're trying to do. So I mean, so the, so the, I mean the, the, inevitably given given my sort of entry point. To all this, the opening chapter is about Montgomery, but mm. not when he's Monty. When he's when he's a he's, major, he's general. He's major, major general, general of the third third Infantry Division. He's he's had two. He's had a scrape with authority a couple of years before when he rents yep. out of the football pitch um, in Portsmouth um, to the council and get uh, puts a, allows a fair to go up on it and he's not allowed to because it's it's government land and he wasn't allowed to do it and he's done it for the pension fund for his. Uh, for his brigade, and he gets into all sorts of trouble, mm-hmm. and then luckily gets off the hook. But but so he's this he's this sort of he's one of these. He's so he's obviously someone who wants to think think of, think outside the box and come up with cunning solutions and stuff to things. But he's a very professional soldier. He's had a, he has a, goes to Palestine. He's a whale of a time in Palestine. He calls it a lovely little war to fight in, and, and you know gives you an idea of the man's mentality. And then when he comes to France, he's you know. It, it, I think think one of the things things that really colours the BEF's performance in in 1939, apart from the British strategic intentions, is all of these officers find themselves back where they were 20 years earlier and they they're all going around looking at where they used to where they used to be based. Well, it's that they, great
1: line from Alan Adair when he get, yeah. when he, Alexander's ADC yeah. comes out he goes, "How nice to meet the son of my commanding officer from
0: 1917." Yeah. And Brook, Brook, Brook does a visit of where he'd been fighting and they all and they and they go to the Menin Gate and it, and and so the BF is you know, they they're getting ready to, they're mm. so, in so many ways getting ready to fight the same war again. Mm. Which after all they won. So so you know, They're doing it with a small amount of confidence. Exactly. And and I think and that that, you know that Montgomery is preparing to fight the the First World War again, which is the the business of the social the sexual health of his men and their social behaviour. But but
1: he's also talking about he's thinking about morale, isn't he? Yeah,
0: yeah. That we don't weigh the First World War in that sort of social context, I think, is really fascinating. Don't think about it like that. It's it's you know, it's all pointless and, and the somme. Rather than the army Processing millions of people in it, but in a way, being this extraordinary social experiment that goes that goes wrong and throws up all the tensions and problems in uh, uh, you know society in post-Victorian England. I think mean, that that in itself that in itself is it, it, it is an interesting subject. So Monty's trying to make sure that doesn't happen again, himself. Yeah, he he always instinctively gets that, doesn't he? Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, and, and you know, one of the things that often, is said of Montgomery. He was a great trainer of men. And you think, well... And that's kind of a way of damning him with faint praise in some of the history. You think, well, mm. surely that... <laughs> yes, because what you really
1: ought to be saying is, is he's a tactical genius.
0: Yeah, exactly. Like the Germans. Like the Germans, exactly, yeah. But, um, but so I took him before he became famous, before before basically the problems with his reputation begin. And I think in that example, he's he's doing he's doing a good job, he's doing it well, and he runs into people who don't understand what the job is and how to do it well. Yes, That's and he's
1: a, he's also a product product. You know, it's also a product of, of the fact that it's the start of the war, and they're still all a bit. You know, there's a, there's a sort of a vein of blimpishness in the British yeah, Army, isn't there? Un, which, unseriousness. Which, 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 yeah, yeah. Well, just just sort of worrying about the things that aren't important. Yeah. Yeah, you know, tradition and yeah. You know, and they're
0: up against an enemy. Grey ground drill, yeah. when actually
1: what you, re- you obviously you do need all that, but yeah. you also need you know, this is a modern war, that yeah. you know, you need yeah. to kind of keep the times so you have to recognize yeah. that this is a conscript army, etcetera, et etcetera. Et cetera, yeah. et and he and he instinctively
0: gets that right from the word go, doesn't he? And you're up against an opponent that's been psyching itself up for this moment. Whether it's right. tactically better better trained, trained or whatever or tactically more able, which is sort Obviously, a source of great debate. They're much more up for it, Um, and and very often that's what it it can come down to. So, yeah so he's the the snapshot of the start, and I think this sort of of essential kind of misappreciation within within the BEF of what what they've got themselves, what the government's got them into. Um,
1: But you've also got you've got Chuka, which I'm really, really, really—I was so thrilled when you told me about that. Yeah, Um, Gertie Chuka, great. You know, obviously, I'm I'm a massive fan. And he's an interesting character, isn't he?
0: Well, yes, because. um, For those who don't know who he is. Francis Tuca was. um, uh, His longest job during the Second World War was commanding the 4th Indian Division. And Tuca was. um, He was from Brighton. um, And he is um, the only intellectual in the book um, by a long margin. he really regards himself i think as an as an intellectual he he's, he writes deep po- thinker deep thinker he writes poetry he Does writes paintings theories of warfare books he wrote a, a book after the war called the pattern of the pattern of war which is a very interesting very interesting sort of um, a, attempt to talk about the, the way warfare has evolved over the over the millennia you know he says genghis khan is as great an artist as rembrandt you know everything that everything <laughs> genghis khan taught us how to use mobile warfare in the way rembrandt mastered uh, 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 painting or whatever it's an interesting book and he talks about how by the end of the First World War because static warfare has failed it's obvious that all the clever people are going to be thinking how to get warfare moving again um, uh, and obviously he regards himself as one of those clever people so there's some, there's some ego bundled in with this but it's, it's a very interesting book and then, and then he, gets to, he tries to talk about how uh, you know, the dawn of the atomic age is going to change all this again and create a new static era so you're going to have to think of ways of moving through that static era. Um, but he's but he's an Indian Army man, isn't he? He's an he? Indian so Army so man. So yep. he's, so
1: he's yep. um, and he's in charge of. He's head of training at Quetta. Yep. Um, and he's deep thinker on it and thinking about how modern warfare is going to be. And so he, he writes all these articles, doesn't he, under under the, the pseudonym Ordex,
0: so or specs. Or specs. Or was it? specs. and a or couple specs. of and a That's couple it. couple of other um, uh, pen names and and. And he, he can't get published because his stuff's too too radical, too crazy, too... He's thinking out...
1: And he has to do it anonymously because otherwise he'd be sort of dissed in the mess. Yeah,
0: yeah, 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 yeah. And, and, and he's, he's unusual for the Indian Army people because he's also thinking... He's very much thinking about another possible European yep. uh, uh, confrontation. So he's, so he's thinking in those terms, which I think is quite interesting because there's a, there's a lot to be getting on with in the Indian Army without worrying about... What mm-hmm. could happen um, globally, and it's sort of not, it, kind of not its job. But he's he's he comes up with these these principles of warfare about manoeuvre and minding your flanks and, and everything that he says are the immutable laws of war that must that, that have been taught to him in a punitive expedition in 1921 in the Assam Hills where he goes up to fight the Kuki people who outfight him to start with, and the Indian Army hands he he's with um, do it in the same old way and they get and they get beaten and he figures out that the... You know, he says, I nearly have a break. He sits down and he writes... Young Captain Tuca sits down and figures this all out. And he's already been in Mesopotamia during the war, during the Great War. And he sits down and figures out these immutable w- laws that I've been taught by these, you know, semi-naked savages, is the language he uses, that basically they know that what you need is a strong point and you need to patrol out for the strong point and then when you find the, when you find the enemy, um, you know, um, apply maximum force, concentration of force. Yeah, it's a all- point. Exactly, all quite, all quite straightforward, but he says, i I figured this out. So he then starts building stockades and patrolling and, and, and basically doing it back to them. And, you know, this is a very old-fashioned Indian army job. There's been an uprising because of religious yep. differences. Um, it, they're sent in to basically uh, re-educate the villages that have misbehaved as the, as the government sees it. And, and it, so uh, it's interesting, that's all going on in the 20s. But he learns this... This, th- these lessons. What's interesting is that the soldiers on that, a lot of them are decorated, but it's not; um, they're not gazetted properly, so it's kept secret because it's been such a disaster. And, wow. and, 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 and Tuca sort of, there's all this under the hood, under the bonnet stuff that the Indian Army are doing, and Tuca's in on this, and that very much colours his opinion and very much colours his way of looking at how the war, how a, a future war might progress. Right. And so by thirty nine, when the when the when the Indian Army suddenly expanded. Fourth Indian Division, a, a sort of um, uh, set-up. And Frank Mesavi runs it, um, who, who's a, a great hero of Burma. And then Tuka's brought in to take it over. But it's right. dispersed, so training it's difficult. So there's guys in Palestine, there's guys in Egypt, um, there's guys in Mesopotamia, I think. And, and so he has to fly around to run his division, but nevertheless turns it into this very effective... So when they come to battle... But he does lots of mountain training with them. And he's, yes, he does mountain training with them, because because... because Indian Army professional soldiers um, might be needed for mount, you know the, the going into Afghanistan or whatever. So he's very much geared towards that. And the, the interesting thing with Tuca is he only ever is only ever commanding professionals, volunteers. And obviously the reasons people join the Indian Army might be economic or whatever, but they're not conscripts. Yeah, they're volunteers. So he has a he has a different appreciation of what he can get his men to do because because late. Once he comes under Montgomery's umbrella, he doesn't like Monty's style. He thinks Monty's too cautious. He thinks yep. he's, 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 not, he's not as... Um, he doesn't crack the whip as well as he could. But I think that's because Tuca's used, used to working with professional soldiers, and Montgomery's trying to sort of keep the, keep the conscripts on line and keep all the different elements. And after all, Monty's also commanding an international force at... at um, Dominion's UK Empire Force, a Duke force. So he's got, he's got political games to play. Tuka, Tuka doesn't have to worry about any of that. So, so it's sort of not... I don't think it's in his reckoning and his, yep. in, in, his, in the way he weighs up Monty. But I'm, he's a I'm fascinating, sure that's fair. fascinating man. He, he's a man.
1: really interesting man. And also, what, what I always think he's, is, is very good is, is that he's very good at seeing situation on the ground and going, this is what they're doing wrong. Yeah. And this is what they could be doing. Yeah. yeah. And, and in fairness to Tuka, he's quite often
0: proved... proved Subsequently, proved right. Well, yes. I mean, in his in his memoir, uh, approach to battle, in his memoir of the desert campaign, he's very, very good on, you know, how wrong the Gazala line campaign goes, to the point. Although it's interesting, he's so angry about it, he doesn't mention Neil Ritchie's name. He never uses his name in the book; just calls him the army commander. Never names him. Yeah. Because he's so. This is written in the sixties, and he's so angry. Uh, And he's and
1: he's and he's he's angry with the Orc as well. The Orkendijk, who's the commander in chief of the Middle East. And because and, and, he says to him, look, I've had a look at this, and this is what I think. Yeah. You, this is what's
0: going wrong. This is this is what you need to do. And he just goes, Pfft, not yep. interested in you. Yeah. Although he thinks Auchinleck should be commanding Eighth Army, you could have sent anyone. You could have sent anyone to Alex to to, to run the bureaucracy of, of the of the sector and what you need is a fighting a true fighting general which is obviously Zorkin Lake. I
1: still think it would be really really interesting if he'd ever had the chance to, to, to command 8th Army I mean it's very interesting you know when he's in the Matmarta uh, Hills at uh, the Marath line in Tunisia he's, he, his troops do incredibly well there's a brilliant bit at the Wadi Akarit yeah. where, where they absolutely outflank the, the Italians Yeah, it's, it, it is there to surround them and, and ten, Horrocks' ten corps just don't move quickly yeah, yeah. enough. And then finally he's given the chance to plan a battle himself totally, on exactly on his terms and the way he wants to do it which is the Majurda battle right at the yeah. end of the war, uh, end of the Tunisia campaign. And in 24 hours it, it, it's, it's such a complete victory yeah, yeah. that no one records it. No one, no one, it's, it's not famous at all now because but, you know if you have a victory it's got to be 10 days and it's got to be kind of jeopardy and there's gotta be, it's gotta, you've got to sort of
0: yeah, although the Germans are done at that point, so it may be that it may be that the, the, the dice have rolled his way in that encounter. But, but 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 possibly. But it's still it's still a brilliantly planned, brilliantly executed battle. But the interesting thing is, is, is in his book, he, he, in approach to battle, he talks an awful lot about where people are going wrong. But every now and again, he comes back to how bad the equipment is, and the the question. Basically, the question. That he's obsessed with the two pounder and how the two pounder um, cannot cannot work in, the, in that theatre, in the desert. Which it can't. Which it can't. Um, but then he'll go back to their, their ideas are all wrong, and you sort of think, well, actually, Francis, what this comes down to is the, is the weapon, and you've identified the problem, and you can have all the fine theories you want, but until, you've, until actually you've got an effective six... But, but six he's very critical
1: of the fact that they're not using the 3.7 inches. Yeah, yeah. You know, Rommel's turning his 88mm... And, and turning them um, yeah. uh, horizontal, and that's working brilliantly. Yeah. Why aren't we using all those 3.7 inches, which are basically doing nothing in, yeah. the, in, in the canal zone and, and around well,
0: Cairo? Well, it's because the six-pounders are going to come online. But what was great, when we arrived, I don't know if you saw the, the documents that were on display for us to look at, there was TUCA's there um, special order of the day for the 4th Indian Division, um, Major General, FIS, TUCA OBE, Commander, 4th Indian Division, um, and what's quite interesting about this? This is in the field, twenty third of October, nineteen forty two. This is so. This is launch day of Alamein, yeah, it, second battle. And what's interesting is, is um, and we've talked about this on the podcast. Is one, obviously one of the things that one of the things that happens um, when Alex and Montgomery come to uh, North Africa is they say, right, we're, we're going to stop mucking about now. There will be no withdrawal, no more withdrawals. We're not. We're, oh, and obviously, there's debate about the extent to which there were plans for the withdrawals, but it's about the posture. It's about the attitude. It's about a declaration of intent, yep. far more than what the, what the actual orders are being written. It's about transmitting confidence to the men. And what's interesting is Tuca, it, it, and there was a letter from Tuca upstairs, Tuca quite clearly has drunk this Kool-Aid, right? So <laughs> he says, no position gained will ever be given up. And that's interesting because he's a, he talks about warfare as manoeuvre. Mm. So, you know, maybe you should give one up if it's not yeah. working out for you. No that,
1: that, that sounds quite Hitlerian, doesn't it? Well,
0: it's, got, it's, it's a tiny bit, and, and it, gets, it gets more so. No position gained will ever be given up. Surrender is shameful <sighs> as long as we have strength to bear our arms. The last man, the last round, the last bomb, and this bit's underlined, the last bayonet. Small, isolated parties of brave men fighting it out have turned the tide of battle, and the whole course of war... And the memory of these men is always with us and always will be with us. I mean, isn't that, isn't that interesting? Because yeah. that's, that's very... He's, he's transmitting the message that, that, that has come right down from the top, sending it to his guys. Today we can give ourselves the assurance that we are far stronger in the air and in artillery and stronger in infantry and are at last stronger in armor. Above everything, we have a cause that is the cause of all mankind. And that's mankind with a capital M. Um, whereas the enemy has no cause in which he can believe. Fascinating. The fourth division enters battle with faith in its cause, with faith in its courage, and with abiding faith in Almighty God to bear us up and to lead us to victory.
1: Well, yeah, whatever your God is. But that's, but that's where, the, or, given or, it's an Indian, the Indian division. Troops.
0: There's a wide variety of gods available. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. was, was absolutely fascinating, isn't because, it? Because that, that is very German in feel. Yeah, but it's also on song with with bon the, and new, Alex. the new management and given yeah. given. You know, in later years, he very much, he, he, he very much disapproves of, of, of Monty, certainly. I think that, that's quite an, interest, it's quite an interesting contrast. I mean, it was brilliant. The, the, I mean, the, the documents they had out earlier were absolutely amazing.
1: Well, it's an amazing, absolutely amazing archive here. Yeah, yeah,
0: it's incredible. Achtung, Achtung! Today's episode of We Have Ways of Making You Talk is brought to you by the National Lottery. Yes, they've asked us to delve into a question that's had everyone's minds racing at one point or another. What would you do if you won the jackpot? on the National Lottery. And we're not yeah. alone, are we,
1: Al? Because we're no. joined by the hosts of one of our favourite true crime podcasts, Hannah George, Katie Wilkins and Taylor
2: Glenn of Drunk Women
0: Solving Crime. Let's just say your numbers have come up. It's the National Lottery jo- jackpot. What are you going to do? Hannah, H- 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 what would you do?
2: In that in that moment that I've just realised that I've, got, I've always wanted to be in a pub because I'm assuming I'm in a pub when this happens. Yes. And I've always yeah. wanted to say, the drinks are on me. And then everyone <laughs> cheers, I get lifted onto shoulders and, and, then I say, but half-pints and single shots only. Yeah, and, <laughs> and just one I'm, round? Money's yeah, not just, come through yet. I'm not... Yeah, I'm not yeah, 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 yeah.
1: And anyway, you're giving most of it to charity, aren't you, Hannah?
2: Sure. Is this, this is being recorded, isn't it? Yeah, sure, <laughs> definitely. Loads of it. Loads of it to charity. God, some of the really good ones as well. <laughs> <That's,
1: yeah. laughs> really, really worthy charities.
2: I'm going to build an, um, an underwater layer, nice. like a James okay. Bond villain. And I think I might have, like, a big party...
1: What would you spend yours on, Jim? Well, obviously, immediately, I'd, I'd first of all, I'd buy up our cricket ground and, and redevelop it. Then I'd buy a Spitfire. Then I'd buy, um, obviously, several <laughs> tanks. I'd also buy a Mercedes 170S and a, a larger Aprilia.
2: Oh my god! All that's like exact same as mine. <laughs> <laughs> I know <they're laughs> yeah. incredible. Wow, twins! <laughs> I know exactly
0: <laughs> what I'd do. It'd be brilliant.
2: What about you, Al? Would you? Um, I'd would you have tell an the ambulance world?
0: follow me around. That's what I'd do. I'd just have an ambulance follow me everywhere I went, just in case. I'm, just in I'm, case. I I'm mean, I'm, look, I'm in, I'm in middle age now, firmly embedded in middle age. But if you can get from 50 to 60 unscathed, you, you know, then you you might get to 80. So I need an ambulance with me at all times. And a, a, a team of the best paramedics money could buy. Just everywhere I go, they follow me around. And I think that would... That He's would down. that would Quick! quick that would bring real peace of mind to my situation.
2: <laughs> what would what would be your crazy purchase for yourself then? Do you know what? My I have been thinking about this and I would buy myself a trip down to see the Titanic. So I would go past Katie's underwater lair and I would go Oh my guys, to you <laughs> on the way down. Hey yeah, guys, it's finally happened. Wow. Yeah, I do have a sort of a weird um obsession with Titanic and I would that would that would be a dream. And then I'd spend the rest of the money probably on therapy for like claustrophobia cuz I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs>
0: submarines surely depreciate the minute you get them off a the forecourt like a
1: yes like <laughs> <a new laughs> as long as it's perfect and you can go and see the titanic whilst still having us yeah you've a
2: won the national lottery you don't need a return investment
0: so the uh, drunk women your your thing is like solving crime in the past some of it that's been solved let's be honest now um but it's which which historic crime you know if you could solve a historic crime with your money what, what would it be
3: yeah, I'd throw a bit of money at a historic crime. I'd like to find out the what really happened with Lizzie Borden. I'd throw my money at Lizzie.
0: What's the extent of the mystery?
3: It was not conclusive that she did it, and there were several people killed in this house. Um, and yeah, I'd like to find out who, who really done it.
0: And is that like a time machine job, do you think? I mean, what, what are we talking I, here? I'm concerned
3: how much of this is involving yeah, the claustrophobic transport. Do, <laughs> do I have to? Is this also a giant time machine? I'm willing to like pool my resources and put it towards good causes, but I just don't want to be in these confined spaces, guys. So on that note, would there be one piece of historic memorabilia that you would want to buy?
0: Glider number one. From uh, the Pegasus Bridge assault on the Con Canal, from uh, 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 where well, it's not really called Operation Distant. There's some argument about that. If we're going to be um, fussy, but Operation Operation Tonga, that the uh, that the Ox and Bucks landed on the night of D Day, the first glider that landed within a few hundred feet of the of the actual bridge in the middle of the night, midnight on D Day. It's the most amazing thing, and I would I would like that got gar- that in the, my back garden, that glider. But I'd have it in the garden, like after they all, because they had to break them tail off. To jump out and then rush over to the bridge i 'd have Great. it like it's just landed in my garden
2: Ooh. and like
0: they've just they've just turned up, and that would be and a cool thing to have
2: would you airbnb yeah. it or anything what's
0: i would airbnb, airbnb it i would i would definitely airbnb it absolutely sounds yeah. a
2: bit drafty yeah.
0: but <laughs> well, it would be very drafty but but it would be real you know it'd be a real experience <laughs> um, for excuse people. me
2: there's no coffee there's only tea <laughs> <laughs> So, we're coming up to Christmas. If you won the National Lottery, what would you buy for each other?
1: Well, it's easy. I'd, t- I'd-, I'd take you out. I'd take you out on a, on an all-expenses-paid, six-star treatment tour of the Pacific.
0: That's kind of... that's kind of. I was going to get you some cufflinks.
1: <laughs> well, I'm obviously a bit more generous than you, but I was thinking, you know, you'd be quite up for going to Guadalcanal and... No, and I, would, no, I and would. ...all those places.
0: I was going to get you cufflinks. Whereas J okay, for one, well, rest H for the other. I mean... I was going to get you cufflinks.
1: My present to you (laughs) is actually really quite selfish because I really want to do that. Um, Oh, right, okay. I I just want someone to come with me who I can talk to.
0: Well, I want you to be less scruffy.
3: Well, I think it's a gift just to be able to podcast with you guys and I'd like to think that none of that would change. Uh, But I'd probably throw in some crystal glasses with our faces etched (laughs)
2: <laughs> I love that your present to us is the joy of continuing to work with you.
1: Well, thank you very much to the National Lottery for allowing us to live out a full life of newfound riches. I know my next move is going to get a ticket, punch in my lucky numbers and make all of this a reality. So remember, the National Lottery its where your numbers make the amazing happen. Whether that's a big jackpot win or helping the National Lottery good causes across the country continue with the amazing work they do. We've got to touch on Patton, I think, for just very briefly, and Peter White, maybe.
0: Well, George Patton, obviously... You know, what's, what's your take with Georgie? With, well, with I think pa- Patton's a, the chapter about Patton is, is, is about, again, his presentation, of, his presentation to his men of the of concepts of um, uh, masculinity, maleness, what it means to be a man, and how those things are filtered through um, his ideas of combat, but, which inevitably leads you to the questions of combat fatigue, um, or as we'd call it, PTSD, or shell shock, or nostalgia, as the American army used to call it, all the different, th- th- those things. Because Patton, is, Patton makes an explicit call on his men to be brave and to be men, to be manly, and bravery is manliness. He talks about them working as a team, and, he, and, and, he, and interestingly, in his, it's this famous speech that he delivers um, on, on the eve of his army departing for Normandy. And, it, uh, and there's an extract from it at the start of the Patton film, but it's a longer speech, and, and there's, a, there's a biography of Patton where the, the, the author has basically created an, an amalgam the, the, of all the likely sources and put them together. Because it's, there, there are snippets of it, and there are different versions, and different versions with different sort of levels of bad right. language in it and all that sort of thing. Because some people approved the bad language, some people didn't, some wanted, people wanted to record it, some people wanted to shy away from it. And it's also showmanship, isn't it? Well, it's showmanship, and he's and he's he's projecting confidence, and he's projecting this idea that I've got everything worked out. But and he talks about you know the, 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 there's a guy there's a guy changing telegraph wires. He's up on a pole. There's enemy aircraft. You know what are you doing up there, son? Well, I've got to fix these wires, sir. And I'm more frightened of you than I am of the goddamn enemy, sort of thing. I'm uh, paraphrasing, yeah. and it and it's really interesting. But the, but but you. If you're going to talk about Patton and that, you've got to talk about his attitude to... uh, You've got to talk about the slapping incidents. You've got to talk about his attitude to battle fatigue and, therefore, combat fatigue. So you've got to talk about the American military establishment's attitude to that, which is at best um, uh, uh, mixed. And and that he slaps men is in the the tradition of American generalship Certainly from the Civil War, and he's he's very much aware of his heritage as a soldier. Well,
1: he's a grandson of a Civil War
0: general, exactly. isn't he? He's, he's, he's plug, plugged into those idea, into that sort of example. Also, the Americans after the First World War decide, and their, and their psychiatric, the psychiatric and psychological establishment is sort of in the grips of a Freudian phase, inevitably because it's the uh, um, you know mid to early, early to mid twentieth century, and so. So there's this idea that um, there are types of people with different ab- abilities to withstand combat in their personalities. And if you react badly to combat... The Freudian idea is if you react badly to combat, it's because something terrible happened to you in your childhood, which I think is amazing. You know, it's the, not, the, not the people trying to kill you and the relentless noise in the shelling. It's the <laughs> fact that, you know, mummy took your favourite toy from you when you were three or something. And, or, and, and, and yeah. they're seriously trying to process... Freudian ideas of uh, uh, psychiatry, psychology through through their investigation of battle fatigue. So, what they do is they, they psychologically test people and they weed people out that they think are unsuitable for combat. So, and, and you know, the Americans process millions of people and reject, I think it's one and a half million people on the grounds so that they're not going to be cut out for combat, something like that. I mean, I, I wrote the book a while ago, the figures aren't right. The, Tips of my fingers. But basically, that they do this enormous process. So Patton, when he's bawling out these guys, he's doing it, arguably is doing it in good faith. He's arguably... He's well, been because, because... He's been go- told there's no one who's unsuitable. Yeah. There's no one who's going to crack up. The army has fixed this, and he's, he's, he's going to trust that. So they're malingerers. So they're malingerers. So they're cowards. And, 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 and it points to... The slapping incidents point to several things. It's that the American army have got that really wrong, and the penny is dropping when this happens. So there's um, there's marines, there's a couple of um, marine outfits in in the Pacific, who basically undergo massive psychiatric casualties. Yep, um, uh, hundreds of men uh, who, who are invalided out, and the, and the, and they're and they're completely caught out by this um, uh, in, in the Pacific, and and they're figuring out quite quickly. You know, they have this idea that. In the army, once they realise that actually combat fatigue is still going to happen, they've decided that men will last 180 days, and then it comes down to 90 days, yep. and then by, by mid 1944 they think they might get 30 days out of someone. Wow! And that and that, and that actually, because they start noticing NCOs are more experienced, cracking up quicker. Um, uh, 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 actually, in their you know in a, in a fresh deployment, mm. so so they, there's all this sort of chaos around the question of battle fatigue. And, and so Patton, obviously, he loses his job. He tries to keep, tries to keep the lid on it. He loses his yep. job. So you see the collision between the idealism of the American army and its ideas about combat fatigue and the reality of war. But then you also see that they know Patton's a really good general, so they give him another job. And it doesn't ruin his career. They know that they've got to hang on to the people who are really, really good. So as well as this sort of outward-facing thing where they go, yes, we understand... Because it's a citizen army, yep. they also think we're going to have to hang on to him because he's really effective. And we need him for the breakout phase, which is what, what, what he says he's going to be good at. Yep. So, so lots of things go on with Patton. And I think Patton has done a disservice by the people who think he's a, a, a bore, a B-O-O-R, bore. And I think he's done a disservice by the people who think he's the greatest general that ever walked on water because he's more complicated than that, and at that juncture in the war, he shows so many things that are going on in the American... New, and the American army is a New Deal army. The things that are yeah. going on in, the New, in a New Deal army with citizen soldiers who are... I uh, uh, think the, the US are having to deal with in the long term now because they, they sort of got away with it in the First World War right? because their involvement was so short. And now they're, they're getting sort of balls deep in, in into the Second World War the, 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 that things are going to pan out differently, but they need to hang on to their good officers. And I think he's, he's, he's far more interesting than just the bloke who turns his tanks around at Bastogne. Yep. He's far more interesting than that, because he, he, he shows what's going on inside the American military establishment. Does that answer your question about Patton? <laughs> Pretty
1: comprehensively, actually. Yeah, well done. Um, uh, I think we should, we should finish with Peter White. Yeah. I, it, it, it's a wonderful last chapter of the book and, and it's a reminder that it's not all about generals. You know, command is, is also at the junior level yeah. too. And so you've got this, this subaltern who's a platoon commander and it is... It's, I, I, mean, I mean, the book and, and what you bring out in, the, in, in that particular chapter, it really highlights... The enormous risks, challenges, randomness oh, yeah. of commanding a platoon and just how brutal it is in that last phase of the war. I mean, it's, it, it's brutal throughout the war, but, but particularly so in that.
0: Well, uh, I mean, uh, we, we well, and I was turned on to uh, Peter White's memoir, With the Jocks, by one of our uh, podcast listeners, Andy Aitchison, I don't know if he's here, he's probably not here, he's attended too many of these things for his own good, and... He turned me onto that book, and it, the, we, we spoke to him for the podcast. It hasn't gone out mm-hmm. yet, but he pointed out that two, I think it's two-thirds of the book is about April 1945. Yeah. Because April 1945 is when you do not know what's going to happen next. Because you, you, it, it starts in Wolkeren. Because the, 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 the war could stop tomorrow. Yeah, exactly. April, in April, the war could stop tomorrow, but it doesn't. And so in Wilkeren, when they get, when they in, when, because he's the first at 52nd Lowland Division, de, de, you know, mountain troops de, deployed below sea level, famously, at Wolkeren. And his first description of running to the Germans is you run into these arrogant Nazis who are going to capture these sort of officers who, who say, you're still going to lose the war and all this sort of thing to the Brits. And then, and then a mixture of people, yeah. with, of different motivations. And then once you get into April, what will happen is you'll, you'll, go, you'll, you'll, go, you'll put in an attack and there'll be no one there. And then or you'll put in an attack and there'll be an SS cadet school full of fifteen year olds who've been told to fight to the last round. And they do. And and you literally don't know. Yeah. You know, that that is it's understood it's a battle. It's a the, the, there's a, a battle to be fought with, with clear objectives and a landing and it's all it's sort of it, yep. it fits a shape, but by April nineteen forty five, there is no shape anymore, and the sheer randomness of it and, the, and White relays an incident where he's he sat in the front of he sat in the front of a lorry and because they're, they're always they're always moving up and they're always they're always whenever they move up there's a bridge or something that's where there's a jeep to one side on fire mm-hmm. or a truck that's truck that's set a mine off yep. so or there's a
1: tree across the road exactly
0: and, a booby trap tree and or, or and there's this terrible incident in January forty five um, where there are sappers passing mines up a line and the and the mines go off and scores of sappers are killed in this sort of daisy chain of an explosion. And that no one's fighting anyone at that point. So there's this sort of stuff going on. Yeah. And White relays this story of he's sitting in the front of a lorry and he hops out to go, and, um, go to an O group. When he comes back, a shell has hit where he was sitting in the lorry. Men are injured in the back of the lorry. The driver, who he calls Walrus Whiskers, is unscathed, but he never sees him again because he's obviously had enough. And the, the, the sheer randomness and white talks very movingly there's a instant early in the book where he he is he's i think he's a little lost at night and he found find takes cover and finds uh, next to two dead guys and he looks at the other man the dead man's hand and he thinks there's no difference between this man's hand and me but sheer luck i'm made of the same stuff as that hand my hand is the same as his except i'm alive he's dead and the difference is God knows what. And, and he, that he is able to... He writes about that and expresses that and then also knows that it's, a, it's the problem for all the men in his care and that he needs to take care of them because that's what they're, they're facing, the same thing as him. Mm. And he's sort of... I mean, he's an extraordinary man. He's tireless and writes of... Um, you know, as soon as they take a position, he has to make sure the men have, eat, have cleaned their weapons, has to make sure they've, they've eaten... He has to check that the fields of fire are right. He has to make sure that the patrols for the night are set, the passwords are out. He makes sure that they're dug in properly, that they're not making noise, that they're not leaving rubbish to give their positions away. Um, that If the previous troops have made a mess of the positions and exposed where they are, he makes sure that they tidy up and that they maybe move. He does all of that and then, and then probably gets an hour and a half sleep. <sighs> does yeah, their mail... Incredible. Yeah. probably gets an hour and a half sleep, and then, and then, uh, and then prepares for stag yeah. first thing in the morning. and, yeah. and, and repeat. Repeat. And, and even in the, even in the, you know, the, the winter months, where the, obviously the nights are much longer, he's under that pressure too, and everyone's yeah. blundering around in the dark. And, and he usually insists on doing patrols himself so his men don't have to. He doesn't yeah. want them to have to face the risk of it. So he'll go out himself... Maybe with a with another guy and, and check what they need to find out.
1: And, and every
0: and every time he does that, he's a second away from yeah, permanently. And yeah. And, and also, you know, short rounds. I mean, one of the things one of the things in, in the book is he lists the casualties of in uh, in his battalion in his uh, platoon, and a lot of them have um, have been killed by twenty five pounder shorts. Yeah. So even your even your own side, you know, and the. the the tumult of warfare, they, they accept that that that's part of the that's part yep. of the bargain, but they don't like it. And it, he, he's 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 an extraordinary man. And I think you you know, at the start of this, we talked about stuff going over a general's desk and the plates you have to have spinning. Fine, but the, the, in a way, the responsibility is detached. If you're the platoon commander, you know you have to be tireless. You well, exactly really that.
1: I mean, the, we were talking yeah, you, you know, when we were talking about the, the weight of responsibility on on commanders' shoulders. Yeah. That applies equally to the subaltern as it does
0: to yeah. the yeah. army commander. And there's the the, the incident at the, you know, um, where they're ambushed, where a man is, Private Byers, is killed, or Corporal Byers oh, yeah, is yeah, killed, yeah. and the day before, White had put him on a charge because he complained to him, and then he's killed, and he re, and he re, re, regrets it. Uh, essentially, it seems White regretted that for the rest of his life, mm. because because the bloke hadn't done anything wrong, he just had enough. Because it was April nineteen forty-five, and everyone thought the war would surely end.
1: I've done my bit.
0: Yeah, yeah, um, fair but yes. Yeah, so, uh, and I think because I think because you know the, we started to talk about this, the idea of the you know the ghost of the machine, the, ab, the, the the sort of abstract idea of command and how you make this all work. Because the other thing is, is there are plenty of occasions where white isn't the, isn't the beneficiary of material Allied material preponderance. There are days where there are no tanks. We haven't got any tanks to help. You're going to have to yep. do that yourselves as infantry the air support can't come the weather's bad and uh, and you're back to you're back to pbi yeah and that and that 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 completely removes the the um we've got more stuff than them argument if it's if it's bren guns and riflemen that 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 that, that's gone yep and the the poor sods have got to do it themselves